Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Jill Lawrence, and today I will be discussing episode four of the FX Hulu series Feud, Capote vs. the Swans, along with a very special guest. It's the early 1970s, and we see Truman with crippling writer's block, all while trying to regain his footing back into New York City society after the fallout of the Esquire article by announcing his second party of the century in hopes of winning back Babe. This is met with disdain from the downtrodden Slim Keith, whose husband has just run off and married Pamela Churchill as she plants gossip in the local news columns to cast shame on Truman's fruitless attempts to resume his societal position. But the shame quickly shifts onto Slim as she's comforted by Bill Paley while crying foul that she's a liberated woman post-divorce. So liberated that she sleeps with her best friend's husband to deflect her own empty, bitter feelings with a vengeance which then spills over to a spiraling, addicted Capote. The woman Slim is speaking to on the phone is Liz Smith, who in real life was a New York City gossip columnist known as the Grand Dame of Dish. She died at the age of 94 in 2017. Then we move on to a defiant babe who wants to go to Truman's second ball of the century to spite Slim, mostly because she knows about the affair she's having with her husband. Then we see Babe disclose her final wishes to Bill in their living room at the St. Regis with her favorite Cezanne painting in sight. This scene brought a tear to my eye, not because Babe is forgiving her sex-fueled dog of a husband, but because Treat Williams is not here to witness the huge success of the FX series. Then on to Jack Dumphy trying to get Truman back on a rigorous writing schedule he was known for early on in his career. When that fails, he finally gets him into rehab. The collage boxes that Truman was making in rehab are actually real, and some were auctioned off not too long ago. I have posted pictures on Instagram of the real ones. During the scene with Jack, we see Truman struggling to understand that the relationship between him and Jack is not transactional in nature and never was. Whereas with the ladies, Truman had to make bold gestures, always performing for their attention. Those boundaries were drawn from the beginning, and while it may have started that way with Babe, who is portrayed as kinder and more empathetic than her icier counterparts, Truman, perhaps without realizing it, began to form a maternalistic bond with her in the absence of his own mother, and the lines became blurred, as they often do in codependent relationships. Testing those boundaries would prove fatal for Truman, and ultimately, he becomes orphaned for the second time. Then there's lunch with Lee Radswell, who lays it all bare for Slim with an icy and quick tone to quit her scheme with both Truman and Bill Paley. To which Slim replies, what happens when he gets to the Lee Radswell chapter? Well, he does. In real life, Lee may have been spared from Truman's pen, but years later, they would have a very public falling out that was so vicious, it's a story unto itself. And Liz Smith, the gossip columnist I mentioned before, had a hand in that whole situation. In the final scenes, we see Babe telling her therapist, it's a battle if you're your own work of art. You can't crumble. The show must go on. Both Babe and Truman were their own best creations, rising through the ranks of society from obscurity and building outsized reputations that with any wrong turn or sign of weakness could easily slip through their fingers. Wearing that coat of armor ultimately grows too heavy, even for a warrior princess like Babe, as she reflects on a life built on perfection and an empty heart. Finally, we meet young Carrie O'Shea, daughter of Truman's abusive lover, John. And in real life, he changes her name to Kate Harrington, supposedly for career purposes, but their relationship 
albeit a close one, becomes a codependent and complicated one as Truman had similarly with Babe, only worse because she's young and desperate. So Truman is able to continue to deflect his own disastrous life focusing on Kate, promising her a life she could never imagine, introducing her to the fashion and film industry, buying her new designer clothes and more. But what's really happening is that he's unable to control his own life's outcome as it spirals downward. So he shifts to controlling hers. It's not a new dynamic in the relationship realm, but stay tuned. This week on the podcast, we have New York Times bestselling author Melanie Benjamin to talk about her nonfiction novel, The Swans of Fifth Avenue. We chat about her own writer's block after the huge success of her other bestseller, The Aviator's Wife, and how that spun into a crisp and sensational narrative about Capote and the Swans. We also discuss how she chose Truman and Babe as the leads for her book, what they saw in each other, why after so many decades this dishy soap opera of a story still excites audiences, and more. So please enjoy my insightful talk with author Melanie Benjamin. Welcome to Melanie Benjamin. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Tell us a little bit about your inspiration for writing the book, Swans of Fifth Avenue. This one was inspired by desperation, much like Truman writing answered prayers, I think, because I was in the middle of a book that just wasn't working. And my editor and I were trying and trying. And I just, I had to tell her I could not make this book work. And I thought before I do that, I better have an idea for something else. Really was out of desperation. I just started looking at my bookshelves for inspiration, which I've done that before. And I came across the only book written by Truman Capote that I owned, which is The Unfinished Answered Prayers. And as I was skimming through the book and remembering reading it, and it it's not particularly his best work, but I did have this vague recollection that there'd been some kind of scandal associated with it. So I went back to the Google machine and did a quick research. As, you know, I wrote it back in 2015, approximately. That's when, you know, I, I remembered the whole thing. And I just thought, what a great idea to explore in a novel because it hadn't been done before then. This whole high society glamour. At the time, The Real Housewives of New York was kind of at its peak. Gossip Girl was too. So it kind of fit into that zeitgeist. New York, fun, and just scandal and murder. And it all just seemed like an excellent thing to explore in historical fiction where we get to imagine the the conversations that go on between famous people behind closed doors. So I actually sat down and I thought, wrote like the first chapter, all in a fever dream kind of a thing and sent it off to my editor with the basic outline and said, what do, I, what do you think of this? Why do you think if we give up the other idea? And she said, oh my gosh, do this, do this. And then I was off and running. Well, we're so glad the other idea didn't work because this was so much fun to read and it yeah. was a new take on the whole Capote versus the Swans mm -hmm. saga in a nonfiction novel. It's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, things had come out with, about Capote. The two films about him had come out uh, like 10 years before this, but they were concentrating on a different part of his story, which was in Cold Blood. 
And um, not nothing. And there are always Vanity Fair articles about this, for sure. But at least as far in a big, you know, a, a novel type form, a larger form. Yeah, this had not really been explored. And why did you choose Truman and Babe as the protagonists? Well, as I did the research of these fabulous women and their sad, sad, sad backstories, I do think that the the relationship between Babe and, and Truman started to emerge as the key as perhaps the most real relationship. I think Babe by far is the most sympathetic of the swans. It is hard to find someone who said a bad word about this woman, that she seems to have been a genuinely kind and caring woman with a surprising amount of low self-esteem <laughs> for her beauty and uh, for her life. But that, I think, uh, makes her a vulnerable, engaging protagonist. And I think that her relationship with Truman perhaps was the most real of his relationship with all the women, as real as he could you know, allow himself to be anyway. They were a particularly icy group of women. So mm-hmm. I see your point when you say mm-hmm. that of all of them, Babe was probably the most empathetic and caring. Yeah. I mean, when you're talking about the lives of the rich and famous, you know, I mean, in a novel, you do have to find some sympathy for these people that on the surface, it might be hard to find some sympathy for these people with their yachts Mm -hmm. and their homes and their fabulous wardrobes and their beauty and their wealth. So yeah, to me, Babe was the heart of the book. She was. And again, I think it's based on reality as far as I can tell. What do you think Babe saw in Truman, who in your book, she refers to as Dearheart and vice versa? I think in Truman, Babe found someone who wanted to know her for herself and not for her husband and not for her beauty and not for her wealth. He admired the way that she had turned herself into, he he saw her as an artist, I believe, which I think probably made, you know, surprised her and, and made her feel better about herself because of the way she poured you know, her creativity into her life, her face, her clothes, her hair, the life she created for her, uh, her titan of industry kind of a husband. I mean, she was a trophy wife and he didn't see her that way. Mm-hmm. And I think that allowed and she needed someone to unburden herself to because her husband did not treat her again particularly well. Her friends, she knew enough to keep at somewhat arm's distance, I think. And in Truman, I think she saw that, you know, we all have that one person, hopefully, in our lives that our hearts just connect. Really do think that that was the case between Truman and Babe. And explain the task of taking a large cast of characters such as CZ Guest and Slim Keith and all these very powerful women and turning it into a gossipy and compelling narrative, ultimately creating a page-turning nonfiction novel. Well, it was different than anything I had written before, which had always been kind of a close past, you know, a one a first person narrative and not the kind of third person narrative I do in the book where we're hopping from head to head to head. So it was a stretch for me, but one I really enjoyed. I saw the book. I heard the book in my head. And as if I were at a fabulous party and I was eavesdropping on all these people, you know, just kind of roaming the room and hearing snippets of conversations and points of view. And that's how I envisioned the book. And I think that's how it came out on the page. It was one of those, you know, as writers, we, some of our hardest books to write, like I will say my most successful book, uh, The Aviator's Wife was, goodness, the hardest book it 
forever for me to write it. It took me forever. It was just a struggle. This one, by contrast, was one of those rare gifts where it all just came easily to me. I felt like it was just transcribing the voices in my head. It was kind of alarming how well I fit into everybody's skins <laughs> and shoes at the different times. And I had a natural rhythm as to when I felt like it was time to move on from a point of view and go back to babe or or visit somebody else. It just kind of, it flowed rhythmically. I didn't plan it. Um, and sometimes, you know, all we can do as writers is to just hold on for dear life and let the book take us places. And that is what happened in this. And I do have to say that you almost feel transported to like a cocktail party on Park Avenue and you're just gliding in and out of conversations that are going on there. And it, it really flows so beautifully. Thank you. I mean, that is not my world. <laughs> I was born in the Midwest in Indiana, but I was a, an odd Midwestern child. I recall reading a um, issues of the New Yorker as a child. Certainly mm. no one in my house subscribed to that. So I, I believe I got them from the library. Just wanting to be part of that world, which I, I think all of them came from somewhere else, right? Almost all of them. Yes. Other places to New York. And that tapped into that part of me that wanted to do that as a young woman and, and just circumstances meant that I never did. So in writing this book, I allowed myself, I was finally giving myself that permission to go to New York and live that life. Just had a natural aspiration for it, I suppose. That's really interesting. Tell us how you reimagined the strange yet fascinating relationship between Capote and his swans and ultimately the undoing of those relationships. Well, you know, it's always based on research. So, you know, I've read the time, the books that were available to me. Uh, I remember reading The Party of the Century, which is a fabulous nonfiction book about the, the black and white ball. Reading the biographies of Slim. There's quite a lot about Truman, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but there was a biography of Babe and her sisters. There is an amazing biography of Bill Paley. So, you know, reading and reading all the Vanity Fair articles that are available for me, you do the research. And from the research, you establish your take on these people. And my my uh, interpretation of them and their their lives may be very, very different from somebody else's. It's just, you know, what we do as authors. And, you know, in, in historical fiction, there are some people whose stories didn't fit in. Um, I'm concentrating more on the earlier years of the relationship from like 1955 on. Um, not so much 70s on. Or, you know, look how Basque, the story. So that meant that in my novel, Lee Radzowell did not really have a part of it. Neither did Joanna Carson or the, you know, the people who were in Truman's life after. You know, I have Pam Churchill more involved in this. So I, you know, who we love, by the way, she is such a character in and of herself. Oh, she is. And her, I loved her. Uh, her and Slim's quips at each other in those scenes at Le Basque, um, which were were fun, fun, fun to write. And, you know, she did, was such a catalyst in Slim's life. And Slim was a major major part of my novel that she had to be there. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you kind of determine what is the through line? What is the story I'm telling? And it is a story of betrayal here, but it's a story of love between Babe and, and Truman. And so, who am I going to include? So once that's established, then based on the research, I'm just, you know, I'm just becoming these people on the page and defining their relationships the way I saw them and the way I thought that readers would like to see them too. 
In the follow-up of the Lacote Basque Esquire article, Truman claimed to be baffled by their reactions and wounded by their rejection. But you argued that their stories were told to him for a reason. Tell us a little bit about that. Certainly, Babe confided to Truman in, in, because, for a different reason than the others did, because you know she needed someone. I think she was a very, very lonely woman at heart. You know, again, I think the fact that he seemed to see qualities in her beyond her 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 face <laughs> um, appealed to her in a very, very tender, real way. And I think the other women told him stories just because they. I think they just adopted him. I think at some point they forgot he was a writer. And mm-hmm. just saw him as one of the girlfriends at lunch. And, you know, at that point, the walls come down, perhaps, um, dangerously. So I do think there was a, t- you know, they they always felt superior to him because of their wealth. And I think that superiority um, and then that kind of taking him for granted, perhaps, allowed them, unfortunately, to to tell him to divulge things that they shouldn't have and perhaps mm-hmm. it was therapy because all these women i believe were very much taken for granted by their husbands very much so you know he was a sympathetic ear for sure and why do you think he was baffled by their reactions my theory about this is, is several fold it's like you know why did he do it i think he did it because he had a he had a huge case of redder block after in cold blood that after the success of In Cold Blood, which is fabulous, by the way, and I think we all should read Truman's earlier works definitely to see what a genius he was. After that, sometimes after an enormous success like that, especially something that you've waited years in, in order to see come to fruition, like he had to, that you there's a stunning sense of how on earth am I going to follow this up? What do I do next? And that can block you as a creative person. And I believe he was truly blocked and desperate to be published again. And that's when he looked around and saw all these stories. And that's why he did this. And why he claims to have been baffled by the reaction you know, he famously told people that they were too dumb to to recognize themselves but i don't think he thinks that was true i i mean truman was too smart to know that i think he just was so desperate i also think that in all these women but in particularly babe he was looking for that mother he never had the mother who would unconditionally love him no matter what and that perhaps he was testing that love with the publication mm. of that's and, very interesting because he ended up being abandoned by Babe as well yeah. as his mother. Yeah. So it all came full circle, unfortunately, for Mr. Truman Capote. And I mean, there is a lot of sympathy I had for him. As despicable as he can be, his childhood was wretched. And um, his mother uh, constantly, you know, could not accept him for who he was and was disappointed in him and then, you know, physically left him for long periods of time, no matter mm. what. So. Yeah, I I do think that there's a part that maybe he wasn't even aware that he was testing their love and sadly found them to, they abandoned him, except for CZ Guest. She was the only one who didn't, but the most of them, especially Babe, yeah, there was, it was not an unconditional love after all. Yeah, that wounded child theory really applies in in his case. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think he ever really grew out of that adolescence that was Mm. so horrible. And, you know, and in these women, one, he realized his aspirational dreams to live this 
fabulous life in high society, a society as an artist he would never have had access to. But also then, yes, they were all mother figures in a way, I think. Yeah, and I think in the end, even though his celebrity continued to rise, despite the the fallout from the Esquire article, I think really he just wanted to have lunch with Babe. Yeah. He would have traded all that in just to be with her. I mean, his last words were beautiful, babe. You know, that is true. And Mm -hmm. you can't, I mean, that's heart shattering. He became famous, his celebrity rose, but I think for the wrong reasons, Mm -hmm. Um, not because of his art, but because of his ability to quip bitchily on The Tonight Show. (laughs) Yep. So sensationalized over and over and over again, any chance he got. And they loved it. And they did. And, you know, that is the Truman, I think, that most of us remember. But my Truman is the the young Truman, the artist, beautiful young man who um, that's who I want to remember. But that because of his legacy on those talk shows in the 1970s and the 1980s and his exploits at Studio 54, where he, you know, he was one of those people who unfortunately became famous for being famous rather than mm-hmm. for creating you know, his art and his literature, which, you know, he had first come to fame as. But by the end, he was just a a parody of himself. And it's very sad to see that downfall. And what is one of your favorite scenes in the book? There are two. I love the black and white ball scene Mm. because that is where I really got to go to town and and be in the head of so many different people, including Frank Sinatra, which was that was a hoot. And just that was just such a clash of, of, of people. And he did it that way on purpose obviously he divided he invited all sorts of people who did not necessarily belong together and I thought that was his genius and it was a fun scene to write but I also love the scene in in my novel where he takes babe's makeup off and for the first time she allows herself to be seen without that mask yes it is a and they fall asleep together on her bed and it's a probably the most warm heart-wrenching vulnerable real scene in the in the novel where these two people you know especially babe who was always so guarded who always had that beautiful mask of makeup on famously never went to sleep without her makeup on even with her husband um allowed him to see her that way yeah and which of the characters did you relate to the most and why i think probably truman (laughs) to be honest, just scary. But again, when I was researching it, and I found out what a disciplined writer he had been in his early days. And, you know, his his period of domesticity with Jack, where they were living in Brooklyn, and they were just, uh, you know, he wasn't quite, he was still, you know, he was yearning to be part of the swans in their world by that time. But it's still he had that writer's discipline, and that writer's point of view. So I did very much identify with that also really loved Slim and uh, well I can't identify with her life in any way I really appreciated and I think there's some of me in her sense of humor the way she looked at the world so I would say it was it was kind of a combo of Slim and Truman much as I loved Babe and and certainly you know my heart went to her she was not a character I could particularly relate to because of the way she'd been raised and the way she chose to live her life and tell us one thing that you learned while researching and writing the book. 
Well, I guess I would go back to that fact about Truman's early years as a writer and how very disciplined he was, because that is in, you know, that is not the Truman I knew <laughs> growing up in the 70s and 80s. That is not the Truman I recognized. You know, And what part of that discipline resonated with you? You know, I too, when I'm writing a novel, I, I am very disciplined. I have to write X amount of words every day no matter what. And I stop when I'm, you know, I stop at the end of what I'm supposed to write and I get up and I relax with my husband. And, you know, Truman did have that, you know, and he was mm-hmm. constant, you know, and he was, you know, meeting deadlines at that point. And he was very, you know, hustling for the work when he wasn't writing beautiful fiction. And um, then that all changed. So that part of Truman and how beautiful he was as a young man, again, we mm. don't know that. But if you see pictures of him, um, when he first met Babe and these women, he was this golden fawn-like child with this beautiful blonde hair. And he was very slender with beautiful, soulful eyes. That is a, you know, that's a startling image of Truman Capote and not one that we remember. That's very true. It's been 40 years since Capote's death. Why do you think people are still fascinated with this highbrow soap opera? Well, I mean, I think a lot of it goes back to our obsession with real housewives and royalty. And it's like we want to know that the rich and famous have have bad things going on in their lives as well, mm-hmm. so that they seem a, a little bit more like us. Um, but we all were always fascinated with celebrity and we're always fascinated with, like I said, the rich and famous. But I think in Truman's case, it's almost like a Greek tragedy, his epic downfall mm. that was entirely of his own doing that is something we can't get enough of for eons and eons like i said going all the way back to the greeks and this mystery you know he always talked about he had the book written and it was somewhere else and it's like will we ever find will we ever find the last of truman capote's writing i think that endures as well um, and just gossip, my goodness, you know, there was just, there's a new Gossip Girl reboot, right? And yeah. I mean, you know, that is still very much part of our, our culture. And I think Truman and the Swans, even though that happened 40 years ago, uh, or longer, mm-hmm. they, they're the OG of that, right? And I think that's why we keep going back to that particular well. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. It was a pleasure talking to you. uh, My pleasure.